Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got up to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. And... It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everyone, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. This is a rerun of my talk with Maureen Deering Davis, who is a yoga instructor, a life coach, and one of the most knowledgeable people that I know on reducing stress. I thought it was the perfect time to run it as we're deep in the holiday season and shopping. I just went shopping last night and wow, that store was so crowded and The funniest thing is I called my mom up and asked her if she wanted to go with me. And so the two of us are walking through the store and all of a sudden my mom disappears. And I'm like, where the heck is my mom? And I look a couple of aisles down and I see my sister and I'm like, whoa. And just by coincidence, my sister is there with her daughter and my mom was over there chatting with them. And so it was a lot of fun kind of chumming around, walking around the store, looking for cute things for each other, with each other. So that was a nice shopping experience, but it was really crowded. So it's getting to that stressful season where we are buying gifts, having to cook, making holiday party plans with our friends. There's so much going on. This whole weekend for me was just packed full of good news and sad news and just a lot of planning. And, you know, I've got persimmon pulp in the fridge that I need to do something with. So as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to be cooking. So it's a lot. And I just thought this would be a great opportunity for me to rerun this. And also, while I am talking about this, this will be the last episode of the year. I'm going to take some time off. My son is coming in to visit. He's on leave from the army, and I'm super excited about that. And then I have some friends and family coming in and just a lot of planning. It's just a a busy time of year. So we've got two more Mondays. In fact, one of them is Christmas Day, but we've got two more Mondays and neither one of those will have a post. I'm hoping to have something on New Year's Day. And if it's not that week, it will be the following week. So with that, please join me and Maureen Deering Davis in this episode of In the Company of Friends. Enjoy. This is fit into like why yoga is so important. Last year in August, my dad passed away kind of suddenly and we had to fly back to New York for his funeral. Came back and um, when we came back at the same time, my landlady (laughs) had evicted us because she wanted the place that we were living in for her family. And there was a lot of tension because she had some personal issues going on in her life that made it really difficult for us to be there. And so we had to move and I was starting a new job at Torrance. And so all this was happening at once. 
And I was replacing a teacher that had been there for 25 years. Okay. So no pressure. Right. Big shoes to fill. Big shoes. And also like every life changing event that you can even imagine. And I remember sitting down the first day on my mat in this room full of 25 people. And I just looked at them and they're all staring at me with those eyes of like, well, who are you? And, you know, felt that. And I just said, okay, gave my elevator speech. And I said, you know, this is all going on in my life right now. And they were all aghast. They were like, oh, and I said, but you know what? Yoga is the one thing that doesn't change that I feel safe on my mat. I know what to expect and it's going to ground me and it's going to relax me and calm my nervous system down. And there's no chaos going on here because I'm here. And you know what? That saved me. I was running to my mat every day and I'd be home overwhelmed, like almost to the point of tears, which has never happened to me. But boy, when I went to work, I could count on my practice and it saved my life. I mean, I don't, I don't know how I got through it. I really don't, but I did. That's a lot to be hit with at the same time. You know, like they say, when it rains, it pours. And that was a serious storm. It was a storm. And we have this saying in yoga philosophy that like there's a divine Leela And what the Leela means is it's a dance. So, you know, in life, you take a step backwards and you take two steps forward. And as long as you keep moving on solid footing, you can do this dance with grace and with ease and without getting all up in your head about it. And you just have the skill set to move through these challenges mindfully because you're in the present, you're, you're very aware, and you just take action. So it's Mm. this dance. And, you know, there were times where I would come in and one of my students who knew me really well, because a couple of my people filtered over, he looked at me one day and he goes, how are you? And, And I said, oh my goodness. He said, girl, your eyes are just like, they're just on fire. I said, I don't know where I am, but as soon as I sit down, I know I'm going to be fine. So I said, just let me get to my mat. And because again, as soon as I say namaste, it's all forgotten because Mm -hmm. you can't carry any of your personal life onto the mat and I'm fully present for the class. So it, yeah, definitely was my savior without a doubt, you know? Wow. Yeah. And for the average, you know, I, I don't want to just say average person, but for, for the rest of us who might not be as in tune with yoga, um, you know, definitely it's been a while since I've practiced any any yoga myself. How do you get into that Leela, that dance that you were talking about? Um, so I'm changing the consciousness of the South Bay here, especially because now I have a bigger platform. It keeps growing, which my intention when I took this position and told the director, I said, I want to bring back a sense of community to the city and to the neighboring cities and bring people back together. Because when we're in yoga, we're in a sangha, which is a community of like-minded people. 
And unfortunately, these community classes were pretty much people would view them as just an exercise class. And I'm my mission, my dharma is to educate people on what exactly yoga is. And yoga is a lifestyle. It's not just physical asanas. And so I am giving the students the tools, which mindfulness is a big part of it. So how you get into the Leela is to recognize that one, everything you do and every thought that you have, you're making conscious decisions based on your perception and realizing that your thinking and your filters of thinking come from the past and your programming. And when you're in class, really through the practice of yoga, there's eight limbs to it. And just one limb is just the physical asana, which changes your neuroplasticity of your brain. It, it changes the way you think because you're creating all these new neural pathways. Well, when you understand that that's there's physiological change. And then when you incorporate, you know, being mindful into it, like being fully present in each pose and understanding what it does to your body and what, what you're engaging and what you're not engaging. And then how you, you mentally respond to that helps you understand the self better. And so really yoga is just a journey to the realized self you know, not your ego, but like who you are at the core. And Mm -hmm. so when you start to understand that, and you start to practice it, and it creates a discipline, it creates a mindset, you can be in that Leela because life is ever changing. So when you realize that nothing stays the same, and that everything is going to change, as long as you are more aware of who you are and how you respond to your stressors, how you respond to outside stressors, and realizing that that's just a part of the life, but it isn't the whole of the life. It's more about how we respond. And so my goal is to teach people that your life then becomes a huge meditation because you are constantly observing. And then what are you observing? Is it true? You know, um, it's looking from a lens of a discerning mind versus a reactionary mind. Right. And that can be so hard to do. I mean, oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, just even driving, right? Because driving is a completely reactionary process. A lot of times you don't know. Uh, somebody's coming over into your lane from one side or too close behind you, or you end up too close to somebody. And so you do have to react. And um, that's where the struggle is. And, and I guess perhaps the beauty of understanding how to observe so that you can react correctly or appropriately to these different situations. And I just kind of feel like life has become so busy for everybody, you know, there's, you know, this isn't the only thing that I do clearly is um, I have another job. And it's a very, very busy job. Mm -hmm. I'm the main office person. there, (laughs) And so all day long, I have the phone ringing, the emails coming through, there's a radio there, there's people that come to my desk, it's just this revolving door. And I start to work on something and I get interrupted and, Mm -hmm. and then trying to get back to it. And sometimes 
there's several emergencies going on at the same time. So it does get very reactionary at times. Sure. Um, Outside of work, (laughs) you've got plenty of things to, you know, parents who have have to take kids to sports and then they have their own lives. They got to make sure the dinner gets done and, you know, everybody's set up for the rest of the week to be successful um, that we don't find time to do this meditation, to slow down enough to observe what we're doing so that we can either be more efficient at it and have a little bit of that extra time to be able to just take care of ourselves and, recommune with ourselves it's just not happening enough well i totally agree with what you're saying i mean let's take a step one by one like okay the driving situation is become a nightmare because people are so distracted well now you know who's high in the car who's vaping people on their cell phones talking texting it's this mad rush to get somewhere. And it's interesting because my husband doesn't drive. He has Mm -hmm. no desire to drive here. So I'm Uber Mo who takes him (laughs) to his, yeah, takes him to his jobs. So I've already done this with my kids because he's a soccer coach. I'm like visiting the same schools that I took my kids to. And I'm like, (laughs) is this a repeat, you know? And no, Maureen, you're taking your husband to work. (laughs) like Groundhog Day. Seriously. I don't, I don't mind because I love him and it's okay. Now it forces us to plan. But having said that, you know, I spend a lot of time in the car and then I'm, I'm bouncing from gig to gig to gig. And so one of the things that I do, I do breathing techniques in the car and realize that when I'm rushing, because I feel the sense of urgency, I'll hit every traffic light, I'll hit all kinds of stagnation and lanes. But if I approach my driving in a more relaxed way, where I have abundance of time, I'm not going to feel pressured, you know, and I have ADHD, so it's really easy for me to get overwhelmed. But I just I practice my breathing and I always get there on time. Mm-hmm. And if I don't focus on like, oh my God, it's all the thoughts, right? Oh my God, there's so much traffic. Oh my God, this guy's driving like a crazy person. Oh my God. You know, when that month, right. yeah. Okay. But when that dialogue starts, you have to go to the breathing because if you're focusing on your breathing, you can't be engaged in your thought. And you immediately feel your nervous system come down about two notches. So you're like, okay, I'm back. So you tell yourself, okay, I'm not going to get caught up in the drama. It's not going to serve me. And, you know, I'm not going to let it spoil my mojo. The other thing is nobody's pressuring us but us. Mm -hmm. You know, we are all addicted, I think, to adrenaline, cortisol, epinephrine that's shooting in our body because it creates the sense of urgency where all of a sudden, okay, we go, we've got all this power, it's burning our adrenals. We're addicted to it and we don't even know it because we've created that response physiologically in our body, you know, so that we get caught up in that so that we're go, 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 go. And then we crash. Mm -hmm. People don't want to take the time to take care of themselves because it requires effort. And I have found in 25 years of teaching that human nature 
doesn't matter whether it's here or somewhere else, people want a quick fix. They don't want to do the work. You said it earlier. It's a lot of work to take care of thyself and to be aware. And you can't be hypervigilant to it. Then you become neurotic. But you have to realize when you're going out too far how to pull yourself back in and go, okay. And it could just be a two minute like, okay, let's regroup. Like I'm amping up my speed. I need to take a step back, you know, reprioritize what's the most important thing I have to do today. What are my number one things that I need to hit? And, you know, and in a job like yours and, and similarly to me, I mean, I have somebody who's asking me sometimes how to spell things because, you know, he doesn't fully know the English language, although he speaks it fluently in written form. You know, he's only immigrated here six years ago. So I'm helping him. I'm managing him. I'm managing me. I'm managing the household. Like there's a lot of moving pieces, but I think when we can stop and remember that we are so blessed in this country, especially for the ease in which we have things, for the ease in which things are at our fingertips. I think we take that for granted. And I think that we don't stop and appreciate sometimes with the mindfulness stuff, when you're washing dishes and you're overloaded, just to say, hey, I'm so happy that I have dishes to wash. I'm really blessed. And you know, Mm -hmm. it just, it takes you back to your heart where you're just like, you know, it's that simple. Sometimes we have to go that basic because we've gone so far to the other extreme. Yeah. I think it takes, you know, one thing with, with dishes, I don't have a dishwasher, so I am the dishwasher. And sometimes I know, you know, sometimes (laughs) Sophie gets to be the dishwasher. That's my daughter, but I find washing dishes really meditative. That's the time where I just kind of allow all the filters to drop and, you know, just let all those thoughts go through my brain and kind of examine things and um, toss things aside that aren't serving me well. Uh, So I do like washing dishes. Not, you know, it's, it's not like I'm running to do it, but (laughs) I I don't mind doing it. But, you know, a couple of the things that you said that made me think that we need to get to the point where we're actually aware that we need to take that step back that you were talking about. How do you, how do you find that awareness? Because for example, today, something went wrong and we were all trying to figure out how to fix it. And I heard myself saying, oh my God, I hope that tomorrow this doesn't happen because then this is going to be a problem. And then right on the heels of that, I said, I'm sorry, that's just me complaining. I'm sorry. I try to catch myself when I hear myself complaining. I'm trying to be aware of that. And it's working, you know? And then I just kind of apologize to everybody. But you have to get to that awareness and you have to work at it. I mean, it's an actual challenge to understand when you're not being your best self or you're coping because I I think complaining is probably a coping mechanism, but it's not a good mechanism. Um, And so you have to be aware that whatever your choice of coping in the moment is, is not appropriate for the result that you want. It's not going to get you where you want to be. And so how do you find that awareness to realize that I'm getting caught up in the drama of driving, or I'm getting caught up in the drama of life, and I need to just step back 
and take a breath. It's, it's a daily practice. And some days we're better at it than others. You know, my teacher was a gestalt therapist and a yogi, and he called his work a therapy. And I love that. I, I know. It's, he was awesome. And I studied with him for 25 years, and it was all on the mind. Okay. So he said one thing to me a long, well, he's passed on, but a long time ago that really stuck with me. And I talk about it a lot in class is like, okay, we are the director, and you as a writer would get mm -hmm. this. We are the director of our own play of life. I'm the director of my play. You're the director of yours. Everybody's got their drama to play out. It's a lot of its impulsiveness. Okay. So if we can manage our impulsiveness and realize that we're being impulsive again, which is awareness, but realizing like how often do we, like you say, jump into complaining or jump into a situation that you have no business being in. Mm -hmm. Like, because you're impulsive, you're jumping in like, oh, I'm going to put my two cents in just just stopping for a moment. And there is an inner voice that when you start to tap into that, you'll hear it and you'll say to yourself, oh, just just take a moment, a moment, just take a moment and assess. Can I benefit from this? Am I needed here? Is this something that I need to participate in? 99% of the time, the answer is no. But we don't take that time and then we jump in and now we're caught up in somebody else's scene or act. And then how many times does it backfire or we get in over our heads knowing full well we should not have been there. Right. And now we can't gracefully exit. So you have to one recognize like, is this where I need to be? Um, and if you're not needing to be there, just send a good wish to the situation and walk away. It doesn't mean that you're not seeing it, but it's it's a daily practice. It's the fact that you just caught yourself and were able to say, hey, you guys, I'm sorry, like that was, you know, inappropriate or whatever. That's that's number one. You caught yourself. Mm -hmm. So then you just let it go because it's done and over. Um, complaining, I think, is just because we're all energetic beings. It's just a trapped energy that needs to express itself. And the only way in that moment that you're conditioned to express that energy is by putting words to it. You know, being married to an Indian man, it's very interesting because we as Westerners, we talk so much mm -hmm. about nothing. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have so much to say about something so small we use so many words, whereas they just ask for what they want purely and simply. Um, my experience, they see the good in everything. They try to keep their energy positive. They send good wishes to people who annoy them. They see the synchronicities in life that everything's been a blessing, that look, at this was God's wish or Ganesh cleared the obstacles for us. And because there's this sense of gratitude, there's this sense of humility. And we don't have that. We're not a culture that embraces that. We don't because I feel like we really want to always have the upper hand. We've really created a culture that values um, being at the top, you know, that values mm -hmm. being a manager, that values being 
basically king of whatever empire <laughs> you you get mm-hmm. to command and or queen. And when you just said they send good wishes to those that have wronged them, I thought, wow, what a blissful way to think because we do collect points. I mean, we, we're a scorekeeping society. We do keep the score even when we think that we don't. And I think that really traps us you know, if you have to keep score, all of a sudden you've accepted that role and that keeps you from pursuing happiness or contentment or meaning or purpose. You know, I always say that contentment or happiness that people are searching for, it comes from having meaning and purpose in life. And if your purpose is just to keep score, you're not going to find contentment. That's your ego. And that's what people don't get, you know. So in the tradition, the philosophy of yoga, there's a lot of books, you know, there's the Bhagavad Gita, and there's the Upanishads and all that. Well, the reason that the Indians send best wishes or whatever is like, there's three types of karma. So there's karma that you're born coming in, if you believe in reincarnation, you come in, like to this life, having to maybe work through some past life karmas. But when you come into the world, you're coming in as a pure soul. Okay. And actually, this Mm -hmm. is kind of mind blowing. But you know, that's why a baby's head is soft at the crown chakra, because they are still that connected to the divine. So they are divine Mm -hmm. beings, they are still God like beings, because they're pure, their minds are pure, like everything's new to them, they have a clear slate. So I like no, it's it's really powerful when you see it from that perspective. And Mm-hmm. So then what what happens? The parental figures impart all their stuff on the child. And then the child has its own view of the world. And then you've got society. And next thing you know, like the first four years, the child is already like programmed to have their system set up, their, their mental system. And so when we go through life, there's another phase of karma where you make mistakes knowing and unknowingly. So sometimes we make with snakes and we or we do negative things and we kind of know we're doing them, but we kind of ebb and flow like the Leela, right? We go, oh, okay, like I did that. But then we do good things too, you know, that kind of balance that scale. And then the end goal is to clear up those karmas so we become swatic again. So we, when we're born, we're swatic, we're pure beings. When we leave the body, we want to become swatic. Mm. And so we kind of want to enter back into that place. And there's swatic beings. And then a lot of us live in like the rajasic realm, which is like, we do some bad things, we do some good things. That's human nature. And then there are some people that just are tamasic, meaning heavy, they're negative, they have really bad energy. And that's just their karma in this lifetime. Now, will they get out of it? Well, their choices will determine that. But most of the time, the end goal is to get back to being spotic. So having been an end of life coach as well and witnessing death and being like Mm -hmm. a death doula in the teachings of yoga which I teach is like a lot of people are 50 and up and I'm like what do you want to take to your exit with you because what you said is when we cling and hold on to this stuff 
only we are causing that suffering. Right. That's a Buddhist tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So you're holding on to the negativity. You're the one who's suffering. So why do you want to hold on to it? It's not serving you. So that's why the Indians will just send a good wish because one, the deed has been done. If they hold on to the negative feelings around that, then they're the ones who are creating negative karma for themselves. And then they're imposing suffering and pain. So only you can release yourself from that. Nobody else can. Right. Right. And if you're holding on to that negativity and pain, you're also causing that in oh, others. Oh, totally. Right. Hurt people hurt people. Yes. Um, how does somebody who leans more towards, um, I'm trying to use these terms right, and I don't know if I am, but somebody who leans more towards being swadic deal with people who are more tamasic. Uh Was that the right Uh word? Um, Because, you know, we're all interacting with each other. And as much as you want to, at least I know that this is the way that I view the world is, you know, I just kind of want to embrace everybody. There are personalities that cause friction. And that happens to everyone. So how do Swadic people deal with Tomasic people? And then do Swadic people upset Tomasic people? How do they deal with the Swadic people? Well, I think I think to answer your question. Um, how do we get along, I guess? Yeah, well, one, I think when you understand who they are and that sometimes people can't help it, you know, this works for me. Um, because it's a mindset, right? Mm -hmm. When I see people who are maybe Tomasic and have negativity and are very narrow minded, they're not inclusive. They're just, they're like have blinders on. I, I just look at them and one, I have compassion for them. Two, I realize that they can't help it. They are a product of their environment and their upbringing. And they're not, they're ignorant in their evolution And that's not meaning they're stupid. They're just, they don't know any different. And some people don't want to know different. My dad was a great example. Like he was hard. He was not open to any of this kind of talk, very closed with his feelings and kind of at times a jerk. And the only way that I could learn to be with him was to understand and have compassion for one. He wasn't interested in growing as a soul. And I just would say, okay, well, you're just going to have to come back and do this all over again. And that's your issue, not mine. But in the meantime, I just would have to also pick and choose times that I had enough energy to deal with him so that I wasn't drawn into his Tomasic negative energy. Um, or react to it more than anything, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like get my feelings hurt, finding out the feeling that he was too abrasive. You know, he just would say things that were mean, but he didn't mean them. It's just who he was. So I think when you have an understanding of who those people are, and then try to show them through your actions, be a teacher to them. Like be a teacher to the people who are negative around you by showing up 
Yeah, and it can be really easy to absorb that negative energy into yourself, you know, and I know that that's happened to me on occasion where, you know, somebody just really upset me and I have gotten so much better at it as I get older to kind of put a divide between my energy and other people's energies when, you know, they're threatening to bring me down or to upset me. I don't succeed every single time, but I do catch myself asking the same question. You know, why did that person make me feel like that? Like, what what about that person? Because it's not the person. Nobody can ever make you Correct. feel. Um, who was it? Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, right? Nobody can ever make you feel like a victim, I think was her saying. I'm going to have to look that up. But um, it's a really great saying that she had about that. It's within you accepting it, you know, accepting the negativity from somebody else. But one of the things that I really liked about what you said is building that empathy. I think that, again, because we're a scorekeeping society, and because we're always trying to get to the top, Mm-hmm. we don't build up enough empathy within us for, for other people. And I think when you've been taken advantage of mm-hmm. <laughs> by others, you tend to hold back on mm-hmm. that empathy a mm-hmm. lot too. It's kind of, um, that's kind of a Leela, right? How much empathy you're going to put out and how much oh, yeah. you're going to hang on to sometimes. Well, and I think that when you've been taken advantage of or you've been hurt deeply, I mean, I've had some pretty significant deceits and just devastating hurt, right? My true nature from the time I was little was I just loved everybody, you know, and I got hurt because of that, because I never saw like people, like I never could figure out why people did what they did. And it caused me a lot of pain and suffering. And so I realize now that I have to draw really good boundaries. So drawing really good boundaries is important. And then it's always a process like each disappointment and each hurt you have to process to get over it and um do you truly ever get over it a hundred percent uh there's always work to do but again if you're holding on to it then again you're the one who's suffering but everybody who we have a response to i feel it's we have to ask ourselves like what is it about them that's triggering me you know and sometimes it could be we are exactly alike. Like people just, they used to think that I was bitchy. And because I came from a pretty well-known family back East that I was a rich bitch, but actually in reality, I was like painfully shy. And so this girl could be painfully shy and I'm projecting out to her just in the simplest terms that she's whatever and it could be completely the opposite and she's just not good at connecting with people so I'm not going to let her upset my day it's like come on we're all living together here like why am I starting my day off like this like silly me. So now I don't care. And I'm flipping the script. So I'm changing it because in yoga too, we always cultivate the opposites. So if you want to turn a negative into a positive, you have to flip it into a positive. And it just makes it for a more harmonious way of being. And over time, maybe she'll switch. If she doesn't, okay, I did my best. I'm not responsible for the outcome. Yeah. It's not my job. It's not my job. I say that a lot. That's one of my, you know, it's not my job to change people. 
And no, it's funny because today, um, married for 22 years, I dated for four years before that. So it's like a total of 26 years with the same family, you know, then the divorce happened. And uh, my former mother in law didn't really know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. She was mad at me and all this stuff. And then something happened, uh, where she saw my side (laughs) of this situation. Mm -hmm. And we became really good friends. The divorce started in 2015. So you know, it's been a good six, seven years now. So there would be times where she was really distant. And Mm -hmm. I respected that I just thought, you know, she needs her space. And then she would get really close. And you know, she would introduce me to people three years later as her daughter in law. And so for about a good year now, she made a purposeful effort to really put a divide in there. And I thought, well, okay, I still consider her family. I've known her for way more than half of my life. And I thought, well, okay, you know, if she wants to keep the distance, she can keep the distance. I will still think about her and I wish her well. And today is her birthday. So on my way home, I haven't talked to her in probably eight months, maybe even longer. I gave her a call. And so we talked for almost an hour, you know, Hmm. I don't know that she's gonna want to talk to me again, or, you know, even call me or this is going to change anything. And that's completely fine with me. And I guess that's acceptance to understand that this is the way that the relationship is. And I honor the other person's wishes and don't wish them ill. And I think it's kind of nice to have a relationship like that in your life. Sometimes, of course, I wish that she would talk to me like she used to, but I know that that's probably not going to happen. And I'm okay with that. But it's nice to be able to compare other relationships to something where you're just so comfortable with allowing the other person to be who they are, whether they want to be in your life or not, and learning from that, you know, so I do learn from this every time about other relationships that either rub me the wrong way, impact me negatively, um, And, you know, trying to bring them closer to where this one is, where I can go, you know, I honor this person for who they are. And we need distance right now. (laughs) Right. You know, sometimes it's, it's like that. Well, sometimes three things I, I will say about that is one, one of our biggest lessons, I believe is no expectations no disappointments. We are a society of expectation. And, you know, that was a big lesson for me. And I still work on it every day. It's like, you know, my teacher would say, well, who's setting the expectation? And I'm like, I am. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, who is the I? And I'm like, oh my God. He's like, well, it's your ego, you know? And just because you're setting an expectation doesn't mean that somebody's going to fulfill it. And also, did you communicate the expectation? You, You could say in a conversation, like say with your kids, well, I thought they were going to do da da da. And it's like, well, one, did you communicate that? Well, no, that was an expectation that you set. And that puts people in a position of failing. Because if we have high expectations, because we are perfectionists, we're like OCD or whatever, people can't always meet our criteria. They're just doing them and they're doing it the best that they can. The other thing is, I think that we are all conditioned to think that in relationships, 
relationships that we need to have a fight and break up. And sometimes you just need a timeout, mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't mean that anybody did anything wrong. It just means that the relationship just needs separation from growth on both persons. And sometimes people just are in our lives for a period of time. And that's really all they're meant to be there for. And then they move on because your time with them is over. Um, but I think ultimately, if we go to the root of it, our feelings get hurt. And then we question ourselves like, well, what did I do? Like, why don't because we all want to be accepted, you know, and, right. you know, and you had all this history. I too married a long time and married to the family. And then when my daughter got married in 2018, it was the first time I had seen my ex-husband's family in 15 years. And wow, yeah, but they were just so gracious to me. It was like no time had passed. But do I keep in touch with them? No, but on Facebook, we acknowledge each other and everything. There's no ill will just because I left their son. Because we had a foundation. If I called them tomorrow, they would be super friendly with me. But there's no need to, you know. Um, right. We've all moved on. I love them dearly. But, you know, my time with them is, is done for now. And what's interesting, too, is that when you're on a path like this... Um, you start to realize that we have a lot of acquaintances and we have a lot of people in our lives that come in and out. But when you're journeying into yourself, it's kind of a lonely path because you realize that there are a lot of toxic relationships out there and you don't want to do that anymore. And you learn to be a little bit more content within and you need a lot less. And then your circle becomes a little smaller. But I think it's just nature prepares you, you know, we're not taking any of this stuff with us. And the Buddhist way also too is teaches about non attachment to things and people. And the more you can detach from that, which isn't needed, the more peaceful you are, you know, we don't need all the stuff that we think we need. Oh, definitely. You know, I look around myself and just the clutter, you know, when yeah. you think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even understand how I've gotten this much clutter. I had um, the house completely empty. And in the last five years, I, somehow things have crept back in. Filled it up again. Right? Yeah. And when you have too much, it does create a state of unrest and yes. stress. I just look at this stuff and I'm like, do I give it away? Do I try to sell it? <laughs> I mean, how do I get rid of this stuff? Now that becomes the issue. It's no longer how do I get things that I want, but how do I get rid of these things that I no longer need? Well, what I did last year was just the first time. Normally when I have to move, I usually can do it in a semi-organized fashion, but because we were under this crazy time frame, yeah. Um, I said, okay, let me just move the stuff. And then normally I'll give stuff away to good will or whatever. But you know what, this time I said, No, I have a Macari and a Poshmark. And I have my little store. And I just decided this is going to be a hobby for me. And I'm going to have fun with it. And I'm going to slowly go through things. 
Like I just went through my closet last week because when I moved in, everything just went in there. Even in the heat, I'm sweating up there and I'm like, no, you know what? (laughs) I need to know where everything is. And so I've got my pile that I'm going to take pictures and put it on Poshmark and Macari. Then I have my pile that I'm going to take to Goodwill. And that's going to be my next step. But here's the thing. I don't have to do it all tomorrow and I can have fun doing it. That's so important because you do get into that state of mind. Like I need to get rid of this stuff and I need to get it done yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm making money and I mean, I'm having a ball and I'm getting savvier each time I do it and I'm enjoying it. Cause you know, my husband also collects vintage motorcycles and over in India, he has a ton of vintage restored bikes. And so that's his passion. And so he's like on eBay scouring for these original parts and stuff. So I was like, I can't beat him. I might as well join him. <laughs> and so now I'm doing my poshing and you know, all all of a sudden I'll hear cha-ching and I've made some money because somebody just bought something that even if it's for $10, you know, they pay for the shipping. It's just, it's a hobby, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I would have impulsively just gotten rid of that stuff. And instead, probably to date, I've made like $4,000 on my stuff. Yeah, I definitely need to do something like that. Yes, and then you feel really good. And then somebody else is repurposing your things And your stuff is living on through somebody else that's really appreciating it because they took the time to buy it, you know, and then you take that money and go on vacation. (laughs) Right, right. No, that is really a good way to do that. Um, I was going to ask you, when I hear yoga, and you were saying this earlier, that people had started to look at yoga as a exercise rather than a practice. Mm -hmm. I hear so many different types of yoga, like there's, you know, there's hot yoga and Berkham yoga, and there's fast yoga and slow yoga. And (laughs) um, what's the difference between these types of yoga? Are some of them just purely exercise? And what's the difference between practicing yoga as part of your lifestyle? Um, and doing some of these these other types of yogas that I just mentioned. Okay, so the original yoga, the traditional ancient yoga that's 4,000 years old plus is Hatha yoga. And Hatha yoga, Hatha means sun and moon. Okay, so you're taking Mm -hmm. energy from two channels in the body, the Ida and Pingala, and you merge them together and they go up the spine and awaken the chakras. Okay, so traditional Hatha yoga is blending breath with movement. Now, Ashtanga yoga is similar to Hatha, except they do it in like their series. So instead of different poses, there's like a series that you do. And as you advance and do all these really intense postures, they focus a lot on alignment. Then you have Anusara, which is another, you don't hear about that so much anymore, but Anusara is also very much alignment based. You have Iyengar yoga, which is based with using props to get you in specific yoga poses. Those are the top four that came about, but it stems from Hatha first. Then people now through marketing, hot yoga is not really yoga. It's just yoga done in a heated room. Um, Power yoga is not really yoga. That's a marketing ploy where they 
move through the postures fast and maybe keep the room at like 90 degrees to sweat so that you think you're in getting a really good workout and you are. Then there's vinyasa yoga and vinyasa is just literally means to link the poses together. When you're breathing and moving, you are doing vinyasa, but it's again, another marketing ploy. Bikram is, we don't even consider Bikram true yoga and Bikram does the same 25 poses no matter what in a hot heated room. Okay. So with Bikram, if you're heating the room to 105 or 108 degrees, you're warming the body up, but you're also tricking the body to think that it can go into poses that it anatomically is not really ready to go into and you end up getting a lot of injury. With different body types, you can be creating too much heat in the body, which can lead to a lot of anger and a lot of agitation. So traditionally, as a yoga therapist, Yoga is a modality for healing the mind and the body. So when it's practiced therapeutically, meaning that you're taking into account the person, the person's issues, they're what we call their doshas. There's three types. There's vata, pitta, kapha. Vata's air element, pitta's fire, kapha's earth. So if you're giving somebody who has a pitta fire personality and you give them hot yoga, you're going to exacerbate their pitta in them, which is going to make them angry, anxious, all the things I just said. That is not going to be healing for them. It's actually going to mm-hmm. hurt them. So unfortunately, now they have strap yoga. They have block yoga. Those are props and they've created yoga around it. They have goat yoga, like all of these yogas. It's crazy. Right. That doesn't look like fun to me. I mean, I... <laughs> I love goats. Me too. Um, right? <laughs> My cousin had a bunch of little pygmy goats for her daughter's fourth birthday party. She had all the little goats out there and they were little tiny guys. I mean, you could pick them up like little babies, but all of them had hooves uh-huh. <laughs> and they did jump on me. And whenever I see these advertisements for goat yoga, I think, oh my gosh, I would not want one of those jumping on my back. I mean, they are small, but they have hooves. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, exactly. And I think they're cute and everything, but it's really not yoga. Okay, so marketing took over and created all these different things. But people would ask me a question, well, then how do you teach a group of 35 people? As a yoga therapist, I have a trained eye to teach yoga in a therapeutic application. You know, I've had four back surgeries. I have tremendous issues going on in my spine that... Yeah. Yeah. So I know from my schooling and my education how to take care of myself. But when you're teaching from a therapeutic place and you're teaching people, one, to breathe when they're moving, I break the poses down. So I can say, nobody's ever gotten hurt in my class in 25 years because I'm approaching it from a very safe space and I'm giving you time to get into the poses. I'm giving you breakdowns to get into the pose so that if you're breathing and you're really paying attention to your body, your body will cue you when you should back off. So everybody is different. Not everybody can get into the same pose. Not everybody's supposed to be in the same pose. Not everybody 
nobody can do triangle correctly. They'll do it to the best of their ability, but over time, as they keep practicing, their bodies will start to change and give them more range of motion and more flexibility so that they can attain maybe better alignment. But more importantly, the asana part of it, the physical part of it is to prepare you for meditation so that when you're in Shavasana, which is the final meditation, your mind is quiet. Mm -hmm. Because if you're paying attention to everything, the nuances of every pose and you're breathing, you can't think about your life stuff. And it's asking you to pay attention. So this is part of the discipline of like you said, like, well, how do you do this? Well, you train, it's a discipline. Okay. And there's times when you're in a class and I can hear people where they, it's too hard for them. Their mind is in the pose and I can call them out because I can hear it. I'm like, okay, I know your mind is like, oh, or you're bored or there's tons of things that go on. And the thing is recognize it when it's happening, come back to your breath breathe, be present, and then you're into the next thing. So this is training you, this is giving you that discipline that you need to be mm -hmm. present, to be in the moment, to not be anywhere else, but right here, right now. And you'd be surprised. I mean, we all, I work out stuff in my class within myself. It's just whatever is coming up that day. So when you start practicing that way or having a teacher that teaches that way, then you take the yoga into your life. So for instance, you get up in the morning, you become aware of your thoughts. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. Meditation just asks you to be present all the time to what you're doing and observing, you know, the thoughts come in, the thoughts come out. It's kind of like taming that monkey mind that they talk about, right? 100%. Because that's what we have. You know, we have that monkey mind that's constantly like, oh, look, there's a banana over there that I want to get. And you're supposed to be focusing on something. And sometimes it is really hard to reel that back in because you really want to go after that banana. Really hard. But again, tying it back to what we said before, which is impulsivity. We're all impulsive. So do you act on the impulsivity? Wanting that banana is a distraction. Right. It's a thought to distract you from what you're supposed to be doing. Okay. But when you're in a class, like what happened a lot too, when we were doing the stuff on online. See, I could never see anybody because I was streaming live, but I would take attendance. So I knew who was on and because I knew everybody really well, I know them. But a couple of them told me later on, like maybe a year into it, see, they were starting to lose interest. They were starting to lose focus. They were at home. So they would get up off their mat. And so I went crazy one day and said in the class, sitting in my living room, like this is where we have our best, what I call Dharma talks is okay, when you sit on that mat, you're stepping onto sacred space. You are taking the next hour to be with yourself. Intimacy means into me see. I'm looking into me, okay? You would never get up in a class environment and walk away. So how disrespectful to yourself, and I would like to get up some days and walk off this mat because I feel sometimes like I'm talking to myself because I don't get any feedback. It was like mm -hmm. some days I was like, I don't know how I can do this again today. Like I'm getting no energy. It's just me. Right. Because you're doing everything to a camera. Can't see whatever, but you're not getting that. Nothing for two years. 
for two years. And so that would be hard. It's hard. But again, I had to dig deep some days. And but then I said, I'm showing up, even though some days I don't want to be here because I made a commitment to all of you to be here. And so you need to show up for yourself. And I tell students now, even in the physical space, like you're stepping onto sacred space, whatever's going on in your world, when you walk in this door, you have to leave it behind. No one would bring a cell phone in to a studio to take a yoga class. Mm -hmm. So basically you're making that commitment to yourself to be here, to nourish yourself, to look into yourself and to ask yourself, what do you need today so that you can take care of your needs to be healthy? Yeah, it's connecting a lot. Like you said, that mind-body connection, it's bringing in the mindfulness, it's bringing in that meditation. Yes. And definitely, you know, you have to make a choice a lot of times with the cell phone. It's just, it's so easy to get sucked into whatever social media, whatever it is that you're doing on that cell phone, or even like reading the daily news cycle, because the daily news cycle is also created in a way that kind of addicts you. And you have to choose what you're going to give your attention to, because you can't give your attention to your cell phone and healing yourself at the same time. And I know that is so hard. I remember a couple of years ago, I caught myself spending way too much time on my phone. I would start dinner and I'd have to let something sizzle for two minutes. And for those two minutes, I was scrolling on the phone and then I'd go and stir it. You know, (laughs) it's an addiction. It's such a bad addiction. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I had a ukulele sitting around that I'd I didn't know how to play it. And I thought, I'm going to learn how to play this ukulele. I'm going to spend those two minutes that I'm just mindlessly scrolling, mindfully trying to figure out how to make music out of this instrument. And I ended up teaching myself how to play over the rainbow, um, not over the, uh, oh gosh. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget what. I know that Hawaiian yes. song. I taught myself yeah. how to play that song. And it was amazing. In that amount of time, you realize that if you're not scrolling and actually purposefully doing something that's going to make a difference in your life, you can get yourself to a happier place because there's nothing better than learning how to play a song. You know, like you want to show the whole world right. that you can play this song, whereas right. there's nothing there to show after you're scrolling through your phone. Well, and you're wasting time. You're just wasting time. Right, that you will never get back. I think that, right. you know, time is more precious than gold. And you need to be more attuned to that. But I do like the fact that yoga brings so much of that mindfulness and uh, kind of slows things down. I, I think that they're also because our lives are so busy, and especially a Western life is designed to be very busy. We want stimulation at every yeah. single moment. It can be really uncomfortable to find yourself in a place where things are slowed down that much, right? You said the key word. To your point, it's uncomfortable to be still and you need to work through that discomfort of being still. And 
realizing, like I have a saying, like if you had this last week to stay alive, like what would you focus on? And it wouldn't be scrolling through your phone. Mm -hmm. We're not going to live forever. Like time is ticking and time you don't get back. And how many more sunsets are you going to see? How many more cups of coffee are you going to drink? I mean, you're going to get to a point in your life where you're on the other side. And then it's like, wow, you realize like, wow, I may only have 30 more years, good years, God willing. I'm already on the other side of that. How am I going to spend that time? What's important to me? And um, how do I use this time wisely? Or do I just want to waste it? I'm six or seven weeks out from surgery now. And I'm able to bend my knee, but I can't get into a kneeling position. Like if I was to try to do any yoga, you know, like I'm really realizing how impactful that can be. And Uh it becomes much more enormous than the whole sum of who I am. Right. We learn a lot about ourselves when we get injured. What you would you have done? I tore my meniscus oh, okay. just walking up steps. I've always been really super active and I do all this stuff and I get injured walking upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so dumb. You're right. You do learn a lot from being injured because you have to think about your limitations. Well, and also too, you know, there's so many components to healing. The knee we call in yoga therapy is the middle child of the ankle and the hip. So if you've got restrictions in the ankle or if you had any ankle injuries or if you sit a lot and you've got tight hip flexors like psoas muscles, the knee is kind of the fulcrum of the energy between the hips and the ankles. And so if they're lacking mobility and restricted, then the knee is going to try to compensate. And, you know, the meniscus is that cushion, just like the disc is to the spine. So over time, if it's compensating and not tracking well, it just wears out, especially for the type of things that you're doing. And so going forward, you know, so that you don't continue to injure it because you need that little bit that's there. You need to look at the nature of your hips and your ankles, but also soft tissue actually takes longer than breaks and fusion type things to have a complete healing. Um, Mm -hmm. But then the other thing too is like, because you're an active person. So when you take somebody who's really active like you, and then now you have to adapt and become inactive, it can be really kind of depressing. It can cause a lot of anxiety. Um, Like you said, there's a lot of adjustments and you you take for granted how much we just get up and go until you can't just get up and go. Right. I agree. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to be pragmatic about it and just reminding myself, be patient. And I feel like I'm almost there. So I'm not as um, anxious about it as I was for a while there. It's been almost a full year. So I'm hoping that by the time that I hit the full 12 months of not moving around, I will be back and it'll be a, a new year for me, you know? Right. And usually like every time I've had back surgery, there's always a period of pain and injury leading up to it. And then you do all the therapies and when those fail or they're not working to correct the issue, then you do the surgery. And then after the surgery, you have all this downtime. And especially with my lower back, that was a good two years of inactivity. And here I was a competitive tennis player. That was my outlet for stress. And then going through the rehab of having two artificial discs put in, that was three months of pretty much being like 
flat. And you just sitting up in that bed, especially with two kids and they had to be certain places and I'd be able to drive, but, you know, pretty much just, boy, I'd sit there and did a lot of deep introspective work. And I came out of that like a new person, you know, like you're saying you're trying to be patient. It's just time and it's coming. But in the meantime, I used to think, what did I learn about myself during this time? What did I miss the most? How could I improve upon that? What did I take for granted? And then how would I show up and be present, you know, and that's six months after that surgery, I started my yoga teacher training. And it was such a mess just from being one, a tennis player and lifting weights my whole life. So I was tight and restricted because I was a weightlifter, you know, uh, hardcore jock. And then now yoga is asking me to just be elongated and flexible, which I lacked all of that. Mm -hmm. And as it was so hard, I noticed that things that were hard for me, I didn't want to do throughout my life. Wow, really? Oh, yeah, throughout my life. Like, so when I started doing yoga again, because I did it periodically throughout 1999 and 2000, and then a little bit in 2001, and then everything came to a halt. So when I was getting ready to rehab, the doctors were like, well, we're not going to send you to PT, like you can just do your yoga stretches and stuff. And that will pretty much help you. So I did that. And then I was going through a divorce. So I got separated, my mom was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer, I was losing custody of my kids 50% of the time. And I walked into a yoga studio, I hated yoga prior to that, mind you. Oh my gosh. Those are four big traumas you going think? through your life. I know. You, that's what like enormous, enormous at the same time. Yes. And prior to that, I didn't like yoga per se, because it was too slow for me. You know, I was like, a am a team sports kind of girl. So I tried it again. And I walked into the studio and something was different. I wanted to do it to work on myself and to understand it a little deeper. And then I decided a month later, I would do the yoga teacher training because I wanted to understand what yoga was all about. So when I first started back, when she would tell us to do certain postures, like I could hear my mind in the poses going, Oh my God, I hate this. This is so hard for me. I'm such a mess. Just all this mind chatter. And I was like, wow, I avoid things that are difficult for me. Again, remember, we talked about the discipline of it. Yeah, I just find that so fascinating. Because being an athlete, Being a good tennis player requires focus, which is difficult in and of itself. I mean, it it requires a particular type of mindfulness and a particular type of dedication that is hard. I mean, those are both difficult things to do. And then to feel like you avoid things that are hard. Well, things that didn't come easy to me. So let me rephrase Mm. that because in playing tennis, I'm fast, I'm quick, I have a lot of agility. And my ADHD actually, at times was very beneficial to me, you know, I'm now taking the step back, I would have been an even better tennis player if I were doing yoga. So for instance, having ADHD, once I got in a zone, I had hyper focus. So I was really good 
at the net because I, I'm all in, like, right? So nothing's distracting me. I'm there. And I got such a high from playing sports and just from the game and the physical movement. And the physical movement was easy for me. So I didn't struggle with that. But then what would happen is as the tension would build mentally in terms of like points, like match point or being down a set or knowing that I had to execute the next two shots, like I couldn't make a mistake, then it became a mind mess game because then I would become impulsive. My timing would be off. I would fall out of the zone. Now looking back, I can see that's what happened to me at different times in Mm -hmm. matches, you know. You get in your head too much rather than in the game. Yeah. And then I couldn't follow through because I was tentative, you know, and then you'd get frustrated with yourself and try to shake it off. So tennis was easy for me, but yoga was hard for me because I wasn't strong enough or flexible enough for what the poses required from me because my body had been through so much trauma and I just didn't have the flexibility or the agility. And in sports my whole life, whether it be softball, whether it was basketball. I was good at it. Why short explosive movements? But now you're asking me to do things that require different movement patterns and they were boring. You know what I mean? It wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't engaging. It was just me. And so that's why I didn't like it at first because it was really slow and difficult. But for some reason, when I walked through that door that second time, I felt like I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And as I continued and things started opening up and my body started to shift. And I felt like the most amazing energy that I'd ever felt in my whole life. I I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then it just became more of a self-discovery and just felt good to be in my body in ways that I could, with my breathing and with my awareness, get into spots that I'd never been able to journey into. So, mm-hmm. and it got me out of my head because I have a busy mind. And was that right away or did it take you some time to practice that to get there? Um, it's always been an evolving journey, but I would say then because I was doing a teacher training, I was doing yoga every single day. And I think when I practiced every day, I was making milestones in poses that probably if you're only practicing twice a week, you wouldn't necessarily have. But it was a dedication. I did it every morning. And actually, I was turned on by it because to be honest with you, I was free of a body that was always full of pain. And so when I was doing yoga, I wasn't in a pain body. I was in my ethereal spiritual body. And that to me was finally for the first time, like in my life, I was able to transcend those blockages that I felt were always holding me in. And I was able to expand out and expand in my consciousness without drugs. Mm -hmm. It was a natural high of sorts. And then the more I did it, the more then I would sustain that calm and was an energized calm. And there were times that I practiced where there were 
moments where everything in that moment was so sweet. It was almost like nectar, like the bliss and the joy and the love that I would feel in certain moments where it was just palatable. It was like, oh my gosh, like life is just amazing right now. Meanwhile, I'm getting divorced. Meanwhile, I'm fighting for custody of my kids. Meanwhile, my mom is dying and my life is turning upside down. But again, like I told you before, with my recent life struggles of my dad's passing, my mat was just my home. It was my sanctuary. It's where everything made sense. And then the real world didn't, you know, so it was it was my therapy, to be honest with you. Wow. Wow. And for people who have never experienced that, getting into their spiritual selves, I don't do yoga enough to feel that I've ever actually been there. How do you reach that point? Is that through the exercises? Is it through the breathing? I actually have a hard time synchronizing my breathing to the movements. Mm -hmm. Most people do. So like my motto is, is if you don't learn first how to breathe properly, you're missing the whole point of yoga. So If I work with somebody one-on-one, the first thing I do is assess their breathing. And 99% of the population doesn't know how to breathe properly. So I teach them the first breathing techniques. And then I break it down and I have them start doing gentle movements with their arms to try to sink the breath with the movement. And then they go home and have homework and they need to practice that. And I give them maybe three or four asanas to work on every day. I tell everybody up front, if you're not going to do the homework, you're wasting your money and you're wasting your time because you'll progress if you do the work. It's imperative that you get this basic fundamental down. Otherwise, you're just moving and you're not going to get the real essence. And in a class, I spend a lot of time talking incessantly about the breathing, where you should be and linking it. So every class starts that way so that they get it. So yeah, that's probably why you haven't felt that because unless a teacher really is dedicated to teaching that, you're just moving through your body and just like you would be anything else. Oh yeah, and catching. Like I feel actual movement snags (laughs) as I'm moving because some, some of those movements just seem so constrictive and then I stop breathing or they're moving so fast through the asanas that I really just want to go slow down I can't catch up yes yes and that's the remember we talked about the vinyasa and it's so unfortunate that they look at it in this fast-paced environment because again it's how can this become a meditation and relaxing and getting out of your head if one you can't understand the direction you're given two you're constantly having to look at the teacher I give so much instruction I don't want you to look at me you shouldn't have to ever look at me because I'm giving you so much instruction that you should be able to just be on your mat and hear me and move. Because when you have to constantly look at somebody, it breaks your meditative stride. Some people will look just to make sure they're in the right spot, but but everybody's a different kind of learner. Like people are auditory, meaning they only have to hear. 
Some people are kinesthetic, meaning they need to see it and move through it to understand it and visual. But some people are all three. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, in private work is I sort of talk people through certain movements to see what kind of learner they are. Because then if they come into a therapeutic class of mine, usually they always had to have like a assessment because then they're coming into a group that's already established and say somebody comes in and they have uh, diagnosed low back issues. Well, I want to make sure they can come to the class safely. I want to make sure that I know what kind of a student they are and how they learn so that they can seamlessly move into the class without holding anybody back, but also so that they can get the benefit. But now with where I am, everybody's been doing yoga for such a long time that they're pretty well versed. But the teacher prior to me wasn't as big on alignment. So a lot of them were not aligned in the postures properly. So we've been breaking things down and getting them in the right alignment. And now they're able to practice deeper because now they're starting to see the subtle nuances of things. But the breath is everything. If you're holding your breath, you are going to feel constricted in a pose. You're not going to be able to move into a twist if you're holding your breath. Right. And I think that's always my concern with a lot of yoga classes or just really any exercise class. You know, I think I mentioned that I'm certified as a fitness nutrition coach. Right. And I did a lot of the strength training, just like you did. That was like Uh huge for years. And I know if you are not practicing proper form, regardless of what the exercise is, you could injure yourself. Right. Pull a muscle, you know, your back just doesn't feel right, whatever. Um, And so you have to be really careful with that. So those are always my concerns is like, I'm not breathing. And am I holding this pose right? Am I doing this right? right? And then a lot of times I feel like in my mind that my foot is where it's supposed to be. And my back is turned and it's straight and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then I have somebody adjust me and it just feels like they're adjusting me into like some crazy position that my body will not turn into. Right. Right. Um, so we've learned along the way in yoga, especially in more of a therapeutic approach to yoga, and I'm constantly studying and doing continuing education. I follow a couple of really good chiros that are into very dynamic neurobiology training. And the thing about the body is that the nervous system needs to feel safe when it's doing movement. Otherwise, it goes into fight or flight. So they've sort of reinforced this And we've sort of figured it out in yoga therapeutics that you have to meet the person kind of where they're at and then let them feel safe. Give them modifications, right? Because that's the other thing about yoga that's so beautiful is there's tons of modifications, tons. And if people are given modifications and they then can feel settled, then they can eventually move into better alignment. But hey, guess what? You may never have a perfect triangle. It doesn't matter. As long as you're breathing, as long as your spine is in the right alignment, then you're going to get the benefits of the pose. Mm -hmm. But um, too many teachers are just flying through the class and not really taking into consideration the actual person. And some people genetically are just made different. They may never get into a seated cross leg position because their hips just won't allow it. And guess what? That's okay. Right. That's okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, 
As far as practice goes, how long do you suggest that people practice? Uh, Clearly every day, but are we looking at 20 minutes, 30 minutes, in addition to, say, somebody who is either running or going to the gym or both, and then they're adding yoga? Um, I think that that tends to be one of the hangups, too. It's like, how much extra time am I going to have to be spending on something And I know that it's more of a lifestyle. We talked about it earlier, but um, how to really incorporate it and make it a foundational support to your well-being on a daily basis rather than just another exercise module that you're throwing in each day. Right. Uh, Well, first of all, as I said, like to move physically with yoga, I would say if you spend between 15 and 20 minutes in the morning doing a breathing technique and then doing some gentle uh, joint mobility stuff just to get your body sort of prepped for the day. Um, There's a whole joint mobility thing where you can just do some simple movements through the shoulders, the neck, the big joints of the body, the hips, and just do a little bit of maybe connecting with breathing, like a flow posture of just, you know, standing and doing a forward fold and coming up, like just to get things synchronized. Like if you spend 15 or 20 minutes doing that in the morning to wake your body up and into good movement, then that's great. And then at night, you could spend 15 minutes just before bed doing, again, some breathing techniques that slow and calm the nervous system down um, and doing some gentle stretching, like maybe some twists or, you know, maybe doing hamstring stretches or something that will calm your body down for evening sleep and sort of as a prep. Then you could do it that way. People sometimes, if they have a really busy life, they'll say, okay, Maureen, make a program for me. Like I've only got at 20 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes at night and I'll hit the high points you know so you hit your you hit your target areas you know and it just depends for each person like if you have back issues and like say maybe in the morning you want to might want to do some cobras to strengthen your back and then maybe at night you want to do some extended child pose to stretch out or the twist to support your back then you would do that if it's shoulder issues you would do something else so or if it's just for overall well-being If you're a runner, you want to maybe stretch your hamstrings and hips out. If you're a tennis player, maybe you want to do something with the hips, golf, same thing. Mm -hmm. So what are your target areas that you want to hit? And then add your yoga to enhance your things that you really love to do, you know, but at night, just definitely something that's slower paced, more focusing on lengthening your exhalation, because that creates a a sympathetic uh, neurological response on calming the body down and getting you prepared to sleep, emptying your mind, you know, unwinding, really. So uh, just for the people who are listening, so a great way, a great breathing technique to do for any kind of anxiety or stress is to inhale for a count of four, hold for one count, and then do a slow exhalation for a count of seven or eight. 
So you double the ratio. So if you inhale for four, then you double the exhalation to eight. If once you get really good at breathing, then you could inhale for six, you could exhale for 12. Because it's in the exhalation that you get that relaxation response into the nervous system. Yes. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that breathing technique, because I heard a similar one to that just recently, which is inhaling for four, Uh holding for seven, Mm -hmm. and then exhaling for eight. Yes, you can do that also. But a lot of people in the beginning have trouble holding for seven, because when they start to hold their breath, they panic, because then the body feels like, oh, I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And then you get anxious trying to hold the breath. The other thing you could do is like a squared breathing pattern, which is like inhaling for four, starting out baby steps, inhaling for four, hold the breath for two, exhale, for four, hold out for two. And then if you get that pretty fluidly, then you could go to six, three, six, three. Then you could go to inhale for eight, hold for four, exhale for eight, and then hold for four, hold it out for four. And that becomes very easy. Actually, holding the breath makes you overcome your fear of death because when you can't breathe, the body will go into a neurological response of like, you know, panic. But, But once you work through that panic and realize that you're fine and you need to relax in those moments, then you can attain the four, seven, eight. That is another ratio that is very beneficial. Yeah. When I'm holding my breath, I just kind of feel like... I'm in between beats. Yes. And it's kind of a it's kind of a, a floaty, relaxing place for me to be in. I mean, I still know that I need to exhale and you know, I start to feel that increasing tightness in my chest that says, You gotta let this breath out as I get close to that seven or eight count. Um, but I do feel like it's a place in between beats where I'm just there. Nothing else around the world is touching me. So I, I do like doing that either, you know, like you said, the box breathing or having those long moments where I'm breathing in for a count and holding it for a count and releasing yeah. it for a count. And it is very relaxing. And, and I guess that's a good place to start to really get into meditation too, because I know yes. that that's all part of it as well. Yes. And when you just touched on when you're in the pause between breaths, you're in a space of nothingness. Mm -hmm. But in nothingness, you're in somethingness, because it's still an act of doing. It's just that you're not actively doing, you're more in that state of observance, you know, and in pure experience. Yes. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, I just thought of when I was younger, it's been a while, but I mean, it still happens occasionally, I'll have an anxiety attack. And it feels like my lungs are not opening up enough for all the air that I need. And I learned pretty early on to just go somewhere where it's quiet and breathe in a pattern similar to what we were talking about. And you know, it might take 10 minutes, but it's always put me back in a place where, okay, I'm grounded and I can move forward again. Yes. Yes. That's awesome that you learned how to do that at a young age. 
Yeah. And it's, it's very helpful just regulating your breath. It's the same thing when you're running. I've talked to people who don't know how to regulate their breath when they run, especially when I was working as a fitness coach. Mm -hmm. And I would explain to them, you just have to think about your breathing while you're running it. Your breath doesn't have to go with each step. You just need to count in a count of four, out for a count of four. And that regulates your breathing, which allows you to have more energy, stay more focused and be able to run further and enjoy it more because your lungs aren't burning. And, right. you know, when you get... <laughs> and when you get to the end, you're not panting and feeling like, you know, you're going to pass out. Right. So right. You're right. I think a lot of people don't know how to breathe. Breathing is so important because that's where all of the oxygenation takes place right. and the, you know, the relaxation, right? It controls all of the, like the cortisol hormones, yes. which is the stress hormone and all of that sort of Blood stuff. Blood pressure. Yeah. So I like to get, I think visuals are helpful with people because, well, if you ever watch a baby, a baby knows how to breathe, right? But again, we're talking mm -hmm. about that swastic being, that pure being, you know, delivered from the divine is like coming in knowing exactly what to do. But through life and through stress, we hold our breath when we're under stress. So I was a chronic person who held her breath, like my tennis coach would always tell me, Maureen, you have to exhale on the exertion when you're hitting your forehand. And I never realized it until I started playing tennis as an adult, like, oh my gosh, I'm not breathing. And I can't really get a good stroke because there's no energy behind me. I'm just, I'm tight and I'm, I'm pushing the ball, right? I'm not flowing right. through the ball. But so life experiences, trauma, whatever has influenced us and, and just stress in general. I mean, you get in the car, you hold your breath. So I like to tell people practice your breathing in the car. But there's a visual that I have. It's like, think of your lungs as like a balloon. And so when you breathe in, you want to slowly fill the balloon with air. Okay, not breathe fast, but slowly breathe in. Then when you get to the top of the breath, I want you to think about the lungs being the balloon where you're slowly letting the air out because if you let the air out too quickly of a balloon, it's going to fly away. Right. And so people have to realize like when they take a nice breath in, your diaphragm moves away from your chest, which allows your lungs to expand. That's what causes your belly to lift. There's no air in your belly. Mm -hmm. the, the diaphragm has moved down to your pelvis. So then the lungs are filling up and as your lungs fill up your rib cage floats up and out and then the intercostal muscles lengthen and expand. So then you have that whole expansion. And then as you slowly let the air out, the diaphragm moves back up. It helps to push the air out of your lungs. And then your rib cage floats back into position and your intercostal muscles relax. Most people will just get the belly to lift and then there's no movement in the chest mm -hmm. because they've done short, shallow breathing forever. So now their body body has adapted to that pattern. And so I like to tell people in yoga, we're just changing bad habits for good habits. We're going back 
back to what is innate in you, but you forgot. And then once you get back to it, you don't unforget it because you change that neurological pattern in your body. And so then you tap into it whenever you need it. Like you can't do three part breathing all day long. But for instance, when I was working in a clinic and I saw people hour to hour, like an urgent care kind of thing. In between patients, I would immediately go into that, we call it the Ujjaya breath, that three part slow diaphragmatic breath. And that would refocus me, that would help me to let go of all of what I did with that person, their stuff, their energy, reset, calm myself down, and then be good to go again. And it just happened automatic, because I would do it every single time. And I knew I knew how to tap into it. Same thing like if you go for a medical procedure or whatever, I immediately go into that breathing and people are like, what is that noise? And they're like, that's her breathing. And they're like, wow, like you sound like Dark Vader, you know? And I'm like, it just happens. <laughs> Darth Vader. <laughs> you know, I, it's seriously, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because what did you call it? Uh, you, what Ujaya. did you, Ujaya. Ujaya breath. That Ujaya breath it's such a handy tool for times when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling down and depressed. Um, mm-hmm. I know that there's clinical levels of depression, but we all go through blues, right? heartbreaks, things like what you were just talking about, your father's death and you know mm-hmm. having to deal with your mother and the divorce and breakups and job losses and car accidents. I mean, there's, there's things that just happen all the time in life that really impact us in pretty profound ways and having that in your arsenal to just kind of pull out and go, okay, I just need to get through this moment. So I'm going to do this breathing and ground myself again so that I can move forward. It's like a great mental health tool. Totally. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of young women in their 20s who've had a lot of panic attacks or OCD through the mindful coaching. Because when you do the Ujjayi breathing, you really want to try to make that sound, that high sound, the dark Vader sound. And when you let your tongue rest to the roof of your mouth or behind your top teeth, it creates a little bit of a lock in the back of the throat that allows you to control the flow of air coming in and out through the nostrils. So that's what creates that sound. It's like kind of like a defogging a mirror. It's like a ha sound. The reason that you do that sound is because your mind will focus on that sound. Your mind can't do two things at once, even though it thinks it can. Right. It can't. It can't. And so that's the quickest way to get out of your head. And so I tell people too, like those of us who wake up at, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning, like clockwork, instead of letting your mind get busy, go back and take some of those Ujjaya breaths, do 10 of them. I guarantee by the 15th, you're back to sleep because you're not thinking you didn't engage in your monkey mind. You're calming yourself down. You can feel Mm -hmm. your body just coming down. And then next thing you know, you're back to sleep. It's a great tool to have. Like it's the best tool. That is such a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was listening to this uh, neuroscientist and she said humming. She said, if you just hum when you wake up. There's a a breathing technique that it's called bumblebee breath. Well, you close your eyes, actually put your palms over your eyes and then put your thumbs in your ears and then you take a deep breath and then you keep your mouth closed and you just go, "Mm hmm. 
And the vibration, one, is really good for your... Oh, yeah, I feel that. Yeah, for your thyroid. But it also stimulates a lot of the cervical lymph nodes and anybody who has neck issues. But just the humming is a, is a very melodic kind of soothing vibration of sound that... You don't need to put your fingers in your ears. You can just, you know, and just let the vibration of the breath just calm you down. I mean, you hear babies making sound, you know, they're rocking and it's a soothing technique. Right, right. You know? Huh, interesting. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to try that next time I wake up in the middle of the night. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you said you were mentioning working with people who have high anxiety, OCD, that sort of thing. So I know you're a life coach. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways that a life coach helps people? Um, Well, my life coaching is a blend of similar to my teacher. It's a therapy. I take all my yoga philosophy and my mindfulness techniques and I have people like one, look at their issues. Let's talk about them. And then let me give you an example. Um, So I had a young girl who had really bad panic attacks and really bad OCD. And she wanted to do yoga. And unfortunately, she didn't have very good body awareness. So we had to start somewhere. So we started with the life coaching. So we started talking about when does she get panic attacks? And the panic attacks were very much connected to the OCD because there was a lot of anxiety behind it. And that would bring on the panic attacks. So she was seeing a regular therapist. And as we kind of dove deeper into that, the therapist had her focusing on all the negative things about herself, you know, and writing it down and so on and so forth. And I started shifting her awareness to focusing on all the positive things about herself. And when we started doing that, she started to feel a little bit more empowered and her self-esteem came back. So I more empowered her, you know, to take charge of her life and to break down all these things that she felt inadequate about and give her, you know, the opposite of what she felt. So I had her focus on all her good qualities. We uncovered in her as a mindful coach to life coach, mindful coach. And so once she sort of understood that and teaching her how to draw good boundaries, like we broke it down week by week into like how a week went, where did she get stuck? I mean, she had stopped driving because she was so incapacitated and she didn't want to do medication. Mm. She started doing the yoga with me and she really liked it. So we started to get into the movement part of it, which really helped her. And she ended up getting a job. And we started to break down those mental patterns of self-sabotage and started empowering her, like giving her communication skills, you know, instead of shutting down, helping her understand where some of her issues came from. Yeah, learn to how to self-advocate, right? Yes. I kind of think that as women, we have a lot of trouble 
accepting agency for ourselves and really accepting who we are and then delving into that curiosity in an open manner about why we reacted a certain way to something. And I'm not really sure why. I kind of find that more in females than I do in males, especially because when I was a coach, you know, anytime that you're you're a coach, you kind of are almost a, not a therapist, but a counselor. Very similar. Yeah, that's really wonderful that you're able to coach somebody through your life coaching to become much more resilient and find that freedom of independence, especially when it hasn't been there all of their lives. Well, I just want to equip them and empower them. My coaching empowers people. I've worked with quite a few women who have gone through divorces and they now have to navigate this new way of life or a lot of people who have retired and they don't or never thought about what their next step was, you know, or people with chronic pain, you know, I get all the challenging cases, but it's good because I love to empower people to one, we have to work through the past, but we can't cling to the past and help them create a narrative that is supporting all of their attributes, give them the tools and just more of like, looking at their mind and looking at the way that they are talking to themselves and challenging them in those moments to not stay in that old paradigm of thinking, but reminding them that they are powerful. And as females, I think when we're powerful or when we try to own our power, we're afraid that we might come off as being bitchy or selfish or any of those things. And that's not true. I mean, I think women shrink instead of expanding because female, I mean, females are hard on other females, you know, unfortunately, (laughs) you know, and, and if you're coming from a loving place, your power can only be used for good. Right. And only you know whether you're coming from a good place. Um, But it's more about empowering them, taking their positive qualities, strengthening those, and then having them go out and implementing them one at a time, drawing really good boundaries and doing things that promote self-care, but also self-love, which is something that's really hard. And it's a daily practice, Mm -hmm. you know, to love thyself is really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I spend a lot of time being, you know, probably a good 15, 20 minutes every day, just kind of challenging some of my personal beliefs about myself, and really more to understand why I am the way I am. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of liberating, you know, where I think I'm a pretty cool person. (laughs) Yeah. Hello. (laughs) And in so doing, it also helps me understand and be much more forgiving of others. Yes. Because I see all so much more similar to one another than we really believe that we are. Yes. And the more I understand myself, the more 
I begin to understand other people. It doesn't mean that, you know, some people I'm never going to be friends with and that's all there is to it. And there's lots of people out there who are never going to be friends with me. There's a saying in Spanish that my mom would always say, we're not all gold coin for everybody to love us. And I agree with that. And I'm okay with that. I think that the world needs that. There's, There's so many different personalities out there, despite how similar we are to one another. And And people are going to gravitate towards those people that are going to support them the most or, you know, kind of um, provide more validation for their personality type. And I think that's really wonderful. But I do find that in understanding the way that I respond to life in general, it helps me understand other people's responses. And like I said, be much more forgiving or at least accepting of that. Well, yes. And we are all similar in the fact that we have, you know, we're human beings and we have this body, but then we come from all different cultural backgrounds and everybody is entitled to be who they want to be. And we're not going to energetically gel with everyone. And that's okay. We're not supposed to, you know, the people who are like-minded are going to hang out. And I think we talked about it before. It's like people come in and out of your life and they come in for a purpose. And sometimes when you're done with that purpose with each other, we don't have to break up. You know, we don't have to cause an argument. It's just that we've done that soul contract or whatever. And now we can part ways and thank each other for the lessons we learned or the time that we've spent. And some people evolve. And if others don't, then we sort of grow separate from them. And then we're no longer connecting at the same level. It doesn't mean you're higher or better. It just means that they chose different turns in the road than you did. And this this is their soul's journey. So nobody's really wrong. You know, I mean, if you really are honest, nobody's really wrong. They're just doing them the best that they can with what they have with their collective experiences. And there's Byron Katie, she's an amazing mindfulness coach. And she has this uh, stuff called the work where she asks for questions. So if somebody says something to you, and you take it in, and you have to ask yourself or with anything, the first question you ask yourself, is that true? And 99% of the time, the answer to that question is no. And then you ask yourself, well, how would I feel or who would I be without that thought? And 99% of the time, you would be amazingly free. And so she does this whole stuff where she teaches you how to, and and I had to do some of that with my coaching back in the day. It's kind of like knocking down the walls, right? Because we create our most rigid walls. And with those questions... She's kind of asking you to take down the walls and see what's on the other side, because if that didn't exist in front of you, what would be on the other side of it? Right. And a lot of times, once you start going, it's called the inquiry. Once you start doing the inquiry, you realize that that person has said something that provokes something in you that goes way back to your past. Mm -hmm. And you're really still angry at this person or that person, but this person touched on something that brought you all the way back to that. And so then you do what she calls the turnaround. And then you address that issue and realize that that was a part of you that needed to heal. And it's called the work, you do the work, and then you're 
free from that, you know. Wow. This is a daily practice, obviously. And we talked Mm -hmm. earlier about, you know, people want a quick fix, but the more this becomes familiar to you and becomes more integrated into your way of being and into your life, it just becomes your life. Like you don't even think about it anymore. It just becomes automatic. It's just part of your process and how you respond to life, how you take in information, how you execute things. And it's just a continuum. Like we're never, Mm. we're never really done until we're done. Right. Yeah, we're always expanding, but it sounds kind of like it kind of frees up the way that you think because it's giving you options. There's there's two options here. You can continue to keep that wall up or you can bring it down and just kind of flow a little more fluidly with life and also understand your place in the grand scheme of things. Yes. You know, because I, I think a lot of us continue to have this sense, um, depending on what the situation is. So, you know, I'm not definitely not excluding myself from it, depending on the situation that something revolves around us. And I can't say how many times I have come across a situation where I'm completely stressing out because this has to get done. Nobody else could do this. This is like, like my obligation, whatever this task is, is so monumental that I've got to get it done. And then I'm stressing out. And at some point, some voice, the voice of the universe comes in and goes, and if you didn't finish it, what would happen what is the worst case scenario you know (laughs) and and I realize I'm stressing out for nothing when I'm 90 years old and on my deathbed this is not even going to be a thought in my mind exactly exactly does it matter no like so why am I giving it so much importance you know what's the worst that could happen nothing it doesn't get done Exactly. exactly that happens so much. And I think we're so rigid. We we get into this really rigid way of thinking rather than going, what are all the possibilities that can make it really good for everybody? Well, yeah, there is a solution and it's called flexibility, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then it becomes a more joyful experience and actually it ends up working out to be the better choice than trying to right? cram everything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think we have to give ourselves that permission to change things, you know, like you're allowed to make up your mind and then you're allowed to unmake up your mind. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And we need to just give ourselves permission to do that. Um, First of all, I should ask you, do you have anything else that you want to add? Did we gloss over anything? Did we miss anything? I think that we, you know, we touched on quite a bit. I mean, we've given people a lot to think about, to chew on. I think we covered quite a lot. We pretty much covered most of it, huh? Yeah. You know, I felt so light and having a better perspective of the world after we talked last time. It just, it was, yeah, it was just a really good feeling. And, you know, this sort of conversation and subject matter really does start your brain thinking. It's almost like um, putting a little bit of oil on those rusted gears or the gears that are sticking a little bit to open up pathways, I guess, to spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. So you start thinking about that a little bit more because the world that we live in is so focused on technology and time constraints 
and obligations and, you know, just really were task hoarders. And until we start feeling the pressure of those tasks and, you know, sometimes get squashed under them. And there's no room for us to connect with our spirituality when we're doing that. And so these are just such great conversations to have to remind you, hey, there's this whole other part of you that you're neglecting and you need to get back in contact with. Yes, it's you need to take that step away from this chaos. I call it the urban jungle. And just spirituality is just about realizing that you are a divine being and that the divine, whatever you resonate with, is flowing through you and is in you. It is part of you. And you are in the image of that. And I think we forget that. And that when we don't allow that to express itself through us, we are denying it. And I don't want to live like that. Like, then why am I here? Like, what's that purpose? This is my journey. I want it to be full. Everybody wants to feel that they've mattered at the end of the day, that they've made a contribution, that they were important, whether it's within your family or, or whatever. And your gestures don't have to be grand. But if you can change one life, then you've done a blessed thing. If you've changed multiple lives, then That's even greater. But my husband and I have this philosophy and he actually taught it to me. It's like make two people happy every day and you're doing good karma. So that could mean opening Mm. the door for somebody. That could mean just smiling to somebody. That could mean just saying good morning to somebody. Like lift your head up, look out and just do two things to make somebody happy every day and you'll feel fulfilled. Yeah. I like that. My friend Mike, he tries to do something every day. And one of his things that he does is always make sure that the shopping cart is back for the next person uh, who's going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's good karma. That That's definitely doing something good for somebody. Um, how can people connect with you? Um, they can go to my website, which is Makara Yoga Shala. So it's M-A-K-A-R-A Yoga, Y-O-G-A Shala, S-H-A-L-A dot com. That's just my website. It just talks about my husband and I and who we are and testimonials and so on. You can email me at Kwan, K-U-A, and as in Nancy, M as in Mary Davis, D-A-V-I-S, at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook under my name, Maureen Deering Davis, or on Instagram. But if you go to my website, you can click on to all of my links there and find me there, LinkedIn, all those places. But that probably the best way is you can read up about us and then you can reach me by email and just identify yourself yourself and that'd be the quickest way. Awesome. Awesome. And finally, if you had one thing to share with the world, you've shared many things, uh, really wonderful things right now. But if you had one specific thing to share with the world, what would it be? Be yourself because everyone else is taken. (laughs) That's so true, isn't it? It seems like such a simple statement, but it's really profound. 
Yeah, just be yourself. Being you is good enough. It's actually brilliant. So, you know, just remember that it's through our light that we give others permission to share their light. And don't be afraid of your power. Use it to accomplish good. Live from your heart. And ask yourself when you're stuck in a situation, one, you can always manage to find a way out. Two, I do inventory daily about letting go of attachment and then and just making sure that this were my last week on the earth, like, would I be making the choices I'm making and living the way I'm living, you know, right now? Or what do I need to change it? I have days where I'm like, how many more sunsets do I have? I don't want to mm -hmm. take anything for granted. How many more beautiful cups of coffee in the morning? Especially when you get to be a certain age, it's like things, you start to take inventory of that. Right. And am I living in harmony with my soul's purpose? I know I'm doing my soul's work. I'm sure of that. But am I aligned with where I'm supposed to be? And I trust, you know, I trust the universe. I trust that I'm being divinely guided. And when I do that, I always stay in the flow. And it makes things a little bit easier because we don't have to have the answers for everything. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, sometimes not having the answer is a good thing. So, yeah. Yeah, not knowing, not knowing how many more sunsets you have. So, you know, not having that answer gives you a lot of answers if you pose the right questions. Right, right. Yeah, just trying to stay in peace and joy. And it's a daily practice. <laughs> And it's, there's no, there's no, I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I'm trying not to be perfect in it. It's just, I mess up all the time, but just being gentle with myself when I do, and I'm just human and I'm just trying to have the best peaceful experience that I can have. And knowing that I'm taking care of things I need to take care of and being good to the people I love and the people that I teach and care about and just doing my best mm -hmm. to whatever that is that day. Yeah. I like that being gentle with yourself because I think it just yeah. comes back to the more gentle you are with yourself, the more gentle you're going to be with others. So that is absolutely, absolutely. Where are you teaching classes at right now? Um, so I'm teaching at the Torrance Cultural Arts Center. And then I teach at the Manhattan Beach Jocelyn Center. But you can find out that information on my website. People can reach out to me if they want to get more information about signing up. There's so much great information packed into this episode, and I am so grateful to Maureen for sharing so much of her knowledge. We covered a lot, breathing, mindfulness, meditation, injury recovery, and the excellent advice of just being yourself, being you. Let your light shine and practice kindness to yourself and to others. Be sure to check the show notes for links to Maureen's website and other things that we talked about. And send me your questions and suggestions to help me design the episodes that most interest you. Please take a second to rate this episode. As usual, your rating does move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I am looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E -L -L -E podcast. I am Sil Annan, the Queen Trail, 
And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, self-discovery, peace, elegance, and beauty.